0: I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Anthony Thomas. He is a nutrition researcher scientific consultant in the dietary supplement industry and director of scientific affairs at Natrion Incorporated, a nutraceutical ingredient innovator that tests and studies ingredients used in the dietary supplement, personal care, food, beverage, and medical food industries worldwide. Dr. Thomas earned his bachelor of science degree in nutrition, food science, and dietetics from California State University at Northridge and his doctorate in nutritional biology from the University of California at Davis. He conducted postdoctoral research at the University of California, Los Angeles prior to transitioning to a scientific position within the dietary supplement industry in 2015. I first heard him speak at an integrative and functional medicine session at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual conference several years ago, where he gave an excellent presentation on probiotics and gut health. At that time, he was the Director of Scientific Affairs at Gero Formulas, and he has since been my go-to expert on infant gut health. Welcome, Dr. Thomas.
1: Hi, Melinda, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today.
0: Well, you are such a wealth of information about a very complicated and mind-boggling environment in the marketplace. So I wanted to have you on to help us navigate that marketplace. But before we get started, let me first ask you, what was it that led you to the field of nutrition?
1: Honestly, when I was younger, I was I'm still very active, but played a lot of sports and always looking to optimize my performance and so I started reading magazines in the muscle and fitness realm and and that kind of piqued my interest and and then I actually was a wrestler in high school and this is a sport that is weight delineated so we had to manipulate our body weight so to say so we can make weight and certainly that made me hyper focused on nutrition and, and people that know me. I, I'm very investigative myself and want lots of information on topics before I pursue them. And so I I really started digging deep into nutrition personally and realizing, okay, well, there's a lot of interest here. And so once I got to my undergrad at California State University Northridge, I actually started as a biochem major, but nutrition seemed like a much more applicable form of biochemistry. And so I transitioned over to the nutrition department and and really the rest is history and i first and foremost for lack of a better term a nutrition geek I, i love it and i love applying it in my own life i love self experimenting and playing with my own diet and it's been a the top of my interest since i've been about 14 or 15 years old
0: well i've been doing this for over 40 years now and i still love it so we share that passion for this topic and i'm curious about your phd in nutritional biology. I appreciate the biochemistry major. I feel like biochemistry answers all the why questions, but I rarely see majors in nutritional biology. Tell our listeners what that means exactly.
1: Right. So my doctorate was from the University of California at Davis. They have a very strong nutrition program and their advanced degrees are in, in nutritional biology. And it's very much focused on the biochemistry and biology behind nutrition Uh, So, you know, I've been trained by integrative physiologists. And and so much of my focus wasn't strictly on diet, but integrative physiology and metabolism and, and how the body processes these very nutrients, how they interact in the body, how the organ systems communicate with each other, and why. I always tell people everything is inherently linked within metabolism in the body. And so, you rarely would there ever be any isolated dysfunction. If there's dysfunction in one area, it tends to affect various other body systems. And, and so the biology component of it was focused more on on the cellular and molecular mechanisms of integrative physiology within nutrition and metabolism.
0: There was something that you said in an email that we've had back and forth, and I wanted to repeat it because I think it is really key to our discussion today. And that is you say that the gut is the gatekeeper to the body charged with a protective role as well as extracting nutrition from what we ingest to support all bodily functions. What was it that led you to have this way of thinking or understanding about the vital importance of the gut?
1: Well, first, I have a family history where there's some gut health issues, colon health issues. So it's something that was of personal interest. But also, you constantly hear people talk about the gut as if it's inside the body. And I'm quick to remind them, I said, well, it's not really inside your body. It's, it's a selective barrier to gain entry into your body. And, and by selective, I mean, not everything you put in your mouth is intended to get into systemic circulation, right? And probiotics as an area that we, we've discussed before is a perfect example. So good bacteria, bad bacteria, it doesn't matter. None of them are intended to breach that intestinal barrier and get into your systemic circulation or else you're gonna have a problem. And so various nutrients, of course, are selectively transported across that barrier. And we have various other cellular receptors and apparatus that reach out and basically sample the contents of the gut lumen, and then they relay information to the central nervous system, to the immune system. And so it's really, it seems like it's inside your body, but it's really not. And so, I like to remind people that there's this interplay that's happening right there within your gut lumen and all the cells and microbes within your gut. And, you know, when we refer to the human microbiota, the first thing we think of is the gut. And that's because the gut and not just the full length of the gut, primarily the colon harbors the vast, vast majority of microbes that colonize the human body. But I would remind everybody that essentially every body surface that is Outward facing, so mucous membranes of your nasal cavity, your mouth, every outward facing membrane, including your skin, of course, is just covered in microbes. And these microbes have a synergistic relationship with us to the most extent. And they actually also contribute to not just that protective role, but also to our health status in various other ways, be it extracting nutrition from our diets or generating metabolites that impact our metabolism and health in various other ways.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And I feel like we're really just at the tip of the iceberg in understanding these relationships. But I think it's the wave of the future. What are your thoughts?
1: Oh, absolutely. Every scientific conference I go to almost, you know, there's somebody that has that obligatory slide. Where you see the iceberg, but then it shows you the amount of the iceberg that's under the water and it's the vast majority. And and that's one of the reasons I love nutrition science. We're constantly learning new things. You know, when I was studying nutrition as an undergrad, I would basically read it as if I was I was just taking down facts. And it's like, oh, this is how much vitamin C you need. This is how much of this nutrient, and and then just recorded the notes. But what I didn't realize so much at the time is, is that's really not set in stone. It's kind of our best guess based on the available evidence. And that evidence is continuously changing. And so we're constantly learning new things, and sometimes rethinking things we thought we knew. And I think having an open mind and be willing to change your mind is a key attribute of being a scientist. And people might say, oh, well, he's got a PhD, he's a scientist. But I kind of subscribe to the, uh, you know, the Carl Sagan, way of thinking, which is really, it's it's more a way of thinking than it is a body of knowledge or, or a credential degree. And mm-hmm. to be a scientist, you have to keep an open mind and be willing to change your worldview with compelling new evidence.
0: That's right. To always be questioning, I think, is one of our core beliefs. Right. Well, let's talk about, during this half hour, specifically about the gut, because I think that when I've seen some statistics about what the American diet has evolved to include, I think the latest statistic I saw was that 65% of what most Americans eat is this a category of what we call highly processed food. These kinds of highly processed foods are not helping the beneficial gut bacteria. And so we we see a lot of gut dysbiosis. In fact, I even saw... At another conference, there was a researcher who said that children today are born with gut dysbiosis. Tell me your thinking about this.
1: Right. So, you know, of course, diet plays this major role in influencing the composition and metabolic activity of our gut microbiota. And when I say microbiota, I just mean the full microbial ecosystem harbored within the gastrointestinal tract. And their collective genetic material, that's what we refer to as the microbiome. So, and that dictates, of course, their capacity with regard to metabolic activity. So this is very interesting. And, and certainly we see a lot of what, you know, and there's no strict medical definition of what dysbiosis means. It, it essentially is generally used as an overrepresentation of, of bad or, or non-health promoting microbes. So be it bacteria or yeast are most common within the gut. And, and an underrepresentation of some that we think would be beneficial and protective. And so why is that? Now, of course, we look at the diet. But then you mentioned an infant gut microbiota already being dysbiotic at birth. It's like, well, how can that happen? They haven't been eating, right, traditionally consuming food via their mouth, right? Yeah. So we know that in humans, it's it's not just your diet, but it's your, your whole environment. And we see like populations in different areas have very different gut microbiotas. And it's not just because of dietary differences, it's environmental exposures. Don't sleep on medications. These things have a very profound impact on our digestive function. Many popular medications, be it proton pump inhibitors or acid reducing medications, or even something like opiates and painkillers, which can lead to what they call dysmotility or reduced movement of foodstuffs through your gastrointestinal tract. This all can influence your microbial community. And with regard to infants, one of the reasons that many infants are being born with more or less what they would call a dysbiotic microbiota, it's because of how, one is there's a a high prevalence of antibiotic use. And an example might be is my son, who's now three, actually was born prematurely by about a month. And we went into the hospital and it was, it was basically two days before my wife was going to go get tested to see if she's positive for group B streptococcus. And while I'm very confident she would have tested negative, because they hadn't done the test, they had to prophylactically administer antibiotics just to be safe because they didn't want to see the group B streptococci transferred to the baby during the birthing process. And so you see increased exposure of pregnant mom and or baby post birth. Two antibiotics. And antibiotics are not selective, generally speaking. They use relatively broad spectrum often. And so while they do often kill some of the bad guys, they often also kill the good guys as well. And in fact, antibiotics is a primary risk factor for various microbial imbalances and quote unquote infections, which is ironic since it's one of the, the primary treatment options. Another factor when it comes to the infant gut is that unfortunately, the pressures on mom and breastfeeding are are often high. And so a lot of women will opt to not breastfeed very long and and introduce formula, even supplemental earlier. And of course, this will have a very different influence on shaping the gut microbiota during this very critical and vulnerable period of development. So that's a major one. And and then, of course, the birthing process itself, we see that particularly in in developed countries, a higher use of of C-section deliveries. And of course, This influences that early exposure to microbes. So so even during the birthing process, as the baby moves through the vaginal canal, there are microbes colonizing that baby. And if that baby comes out via C-section, well, you can imagine there's a very different colonization pattern that occurs. And you'll see more environmental bacteria within a hospital environment that might end up starting to colonize the baby. And so all of these factors combined, I would say contribute to what we're seeing higher representation of, of a quote unquote, dysbiotic infant gut. And really what they're saying when that is, 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 just overrepresentation of some bad guys and, and really lack thereof, of some very key important ones. And one in particular, as the name would imply is called bifidobacterium infantis. And of course the infantis part comes from the fact that it is highly represented, at least historically, in infants. However, we're seeing in developed countries like the U.S. and China, this bug's not present often. And it plays a very key role in shaping the infant gut microbiota, which is very different than an adult gut microbiota, which, again, for an infant, this is a microbial community that's often limited in diversity. I know we often think of diversity as with regard to health in adults, but it's highly adapted To optimize the growth and development, as well as the protection of the infant during this time. And it doesn't just support gut development, it supports brain development, it supports development of your immune system. And so there's an interaction between milk, mom's milk, and these select microbes, with regard to shaping that microbial community, as well as their activity in support of optimizing growth and development for the infant.
0: Mm. We're halfway through, so let me just take one break. Remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Anthony Thomas, nutrition researcher, scientific consultant in the dietary supplement industry, and director of scientific affairs at Natreon Incorporated. Well, Dr. Thomas, I think that there are so many individuals today who are suffering some kind of GI issue. You mentioned it within your own family, and we're talking about the very start of life, there are individuals now who are, say, come home from the hospital, there's a child, you've got this opportunity to maybe reseed the gut a little bit if there's been some damage, we're thinking maybe for the first couple of years of life. And then after that, we've got this set residence, we think anyway, of microbes, and so Adults are looking towards taking probiotics afterwards to try to fix or heal a damaged gut. Do you want to walk us through the life cycle of some of the best ways to deal with guts that have been harmed?
1: Well, I'm certainly happy to share my thoughts. And of course, the infant gut, I think of this as laying the foundation of health across the lifespan, right? So this is a very important period. And human breast milk, of course, plays a primary role in shaping that microbial community. And B. infantis is actually highly adapted to consuming the specific types of of glycans or oligosaccharides present in human milk, so much so that it outcompetes every other organism. And in doing so, it suppresses their ability to grow and thrive. And so this is why B. infantis is one present in the infant gut, it needs to be there in the first place. And the infant is consuming breast milk well, then you'll selectively enrich this microbe and various others that are adapted to consuming these human milk lichens, and at the exclusion of others that we don't want present. Of course, formula doesn't do this. And when we have formula feeding, we see much lower abundance of bifidobacteria in general, which is the key genera of bacteria colonizing the infant gut. Now we know that they're healthy in an adult gut, but they're not represented proportionately in the same way in the adult gut. And one of the key influences on the shift in the microbial community is the withdrawal of breast milk early on. And then of course, the introduction of of solid foods. And that often occurs what around the six month time point is, is usually the recommendation for introducing certain solid foods, give or take. And then of course, depending on what foods you're introducing will often influence the gut microbiota, but they often will tell you that you know, after a few years, three, four, you see a stabilizing effect on the on the gut microbial community. And while you'll see subtle shifts based on changes in environment, you get sick or you know, dietary inputs change, it's still relatively stable, right? But a huge factor that we've just mentioned is, is antibiotics and this exposure to antibiotics, which again will often just decimate the microbial community. And when you say reconstitute, yes, it will reconstitute, but it doesn't come back fast. It takes a very long period. And so one thing I want to remind people is probiotics. I mean, specific probiotics can play a very helpful role, but it's not so much in the way that people tend to think like, oh, I'm going to seed my gut with these good bacteria. And then they'll be there to populate it and I'll have a healthy gut. Probiotics, at least in an adult gut, they don't stick around for more than you know a period of time. So they're transient residents that are moving through that they can colonize for a period of time, but they never stick around long term. And so they're interacting with your cells, as well as the indigenous microbial community. And one important reason why you want select probiotics, both during and after administration of of antibiotics, it's to discourage the negative bugs from gaining a foothold and really blossoming. So an example might be when you take an antibiotic, you may not kill off many of the yeast within the gut. And certain candida species, well, then they can bloom because think of them. It's like they have room to stretch out now. They're not confined by the other microbes present that might be engaging in metabolic activities, taking nutrient resources, producing metabolites that are harsh to the, the thriving growth of these yeast, well, now they can spread out and other bad guys that may have been resistant to that specific antibiotic, well, now they have more room to grow and and be active. And so this can lead to problems. And and like I said, antibiotics are often a risk factor for various other microbial, quote unquote, dysbiotic imbalances in these microbial communities. And so the probiotic is there to also discourage these bad guys from gaining a foothold as your microbial community reconstitutes. And of course, a major factor influencing that is also the foods and things that you eat as well, like I said before. So other medications, dietary exposures, and you wanna make sure that, that you do consume a fair amount of nutrients, so to say, that would be feeding these bugs, not just for your personal health status because they're gonna affect your health indirectly. And so we often will, will refer to these as prebiotics, but really the term prebiotic it includes far more than just fermentable fiber, so to say, which, which many people think. There's various phytonutrients and, and different things. So, so really consuming a well-balanced diet, rich in lots of diverse plant materials. So fruits, vegetables, seeds, nuts, grains. I mean, really things that the American diet is not rich in, at least based on the statistics I see. Most of these food groups are being under-consumed in the American diet. And as you mentioned, people are eating these highly processed foods. And of course, these highly processed foods tend not to have a lot of the nutrients to feed those good bacteria in your gut. And again, most are present in the lower parts of your gut and your colon. So they need to make it down that far. They need to be resistant to our own digestion and absorption, whereas many of these highly processed foods are not. They're very well digested and absorbed. And that's why they're very good at promoting weight gain and and other things. Mm Mm-hmm. I
0: want to walk back to this perinatal time of life because it sounds like that is really critical in setting the stage for long-term gut health in combination, of course, with what we're consuming. So breastfeeding, of course, is critical because it provides, I'm assuming, the food for the essential microbes that are seeded in the gut during birth. But for children who have been exposed to antibiotics, What I have discovered is that many NICUs, they do not uniformly give children or give infants probiotics if they've been exposed to antibiotics. Have you followed that area at all? Are we seeing any changes in having some kind of preventive health care for these kids that have been exposed to antibiotics?
1: This has just become such an area of high interest for me as a relatively young father, you know, and, and watching my wife go through the process and, of course, trying to support her health status during pregnancy and, and then, of course, early life nutrition. So these are major areas of focus just for me personally now. And, and what's really, really sad is that, you know, you hear a term like probiotics, which is a very general term that many people misinterpret and don't actually understand, is that, but in the traditional sense, from a scientific standpoint, there's no ambiguity anymore. Probiotics, at least various select probiotic, either strains or combinations of strains have been shown to be effective at reducing the incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis. And one of the major risk factors for that is antibiotic exposure in early life. And mm. then of course, introducing formula feeding very early, which they often will do in the hospital, in the NICU. So It's very challenging. And and yeah, you're right. Less than 15%, this was the statistic I read, less than 15% of, of NICUs in the country will administer probiotics when in fact the science unequivocally says that they will help prevent this dysbiosis or at least protect against the damaging effects of the dysbiosis in support of correcting it. And the problem is too, those that administer probiotics They administer the wrong ones. They administer ones that don't have good scientific evidence to support. Also, when you actually try to understand the actual molecular mechanisms and attributes of the strain or strains that are being used, you would scratch your head if you actually understood it. So an example might be the most commonly used one in a NICU is is called lactobacillus rhamnosus GG or, or LGG for short. And while this probiotic is one of the best studied, if not the best studied, strain out there, it's not particularly appropriate for an infant. And one of the reasons why it's rather atypical as it's one of the few rhamnoses that cannot actually metabolize lactose, the primary carbohydrate in milk. And second is, is it doesn't colonize the gut, particularly that effective of an infant gut again, because if the baby is consuming mom's milk, which is by far the most therapeutic thing you can give an infant in that setting and condition is that the components within milk, do not feed that bacterium very well and don't select for it. It selects for other bacteria like B. Infantis, like I already said. And so we know that B. Infantis and and combinations thereof is very important and effective for discouraging this dysbiosis early on. And again, imagine pairing that probiotic with the thing that we already recognize as being the most therapeutic and that's mother's own milk. And now if mother's milk is not available, The next best thing would be donor human milk. The problem with donor human milk, or the limitation, I should say, is that because they're giving it to another baby, they have to, quote unquote, sterilize it. And Mm. so now they're removing, there are microbes within the human milk as well, that also the baby is consuming to get into the gut and help protect it from these various bad bugs, so to say. And so it's really sad to see that more not being proactive with regard to the science now. I think many listeners might realize that a lot of healthcare decisions are actually made. And this is how I see it too, is sometimes to reduce their own liability. Like they're not going to do something that's maybe not as well validated as they'd like, or not as well studied. Because again, when you hear about, when I say probiotics are validated for this, it's like, well, the only various select formulas have, and, and all the research is not supporting say a single formula or product. And one of the reasons that they're choosing say, this LGG, or or, or, there's another one that's commonly used called L-ruteri, also similarly not well supported by the evidence for this application. Again, probiotic effects are typically very specific to the application, the strain being used and the dose at which you administer it. And so the two most popular ones being used, well, they're being used because they're offered in products that are single serving package. So there's there's a, a convenience with regard to use in a clinical setting versus say using a capsule. And now you maybe have to open it up and, and do things that can introduce contaminations. So there's some logistical issues there. And, and certainly I would say companies are taking note. They're really not, again, because probiotics are, are sold as dietary supplements in the United States. I can tell you there are some being developed for specific clinical applications, even though they would need special designation for that. One company that's doing it right. There's a company called Evolve Biosciences and they've spun off of of UC Davis, which is a leader in this research and they offer a B. Infantis strain and they actually have developed a single serving vial that's meant for use in a NICU and this is available out. The problem is people don't know about this, right? And now I'm not saying you have to go that route. I know of other products that can be very therapeutic and it's just about hurdles to use in that NICU setting. And you can imagine there's, there's lots of red tape to cut through to, to get a product in there, but can they help? Absolutely. But many NICUs are not applying them and they're not applying the right ones.
0: Well, Dr. Thomas, we're gonna have to close this interview on that note, but I would love for you to come back and do a part two with me to follow up on many of these points and then walk us through the rest of the life cycle if you'd be willing to do so.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Let me close just to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Anthony Thomas, nutrition researcher, scientific consultant, and director of scientific affairs at Natrion Incorporated. Thank you.
1: Thank you.